Welcome to Macaulay's podcast, Stories from the Ridge. We're excited to feature Macaulay alumni, faculty, and friends as they tell their stories about their careers, experiences, and of course, how their time on the Ridge has impacted those. We'll have something for everyone as we discuss a variety of topics, all celebrating the special brotherhood of Macaulay with an emphasis on honor, truth, and duty. Now on to our episode. Today we are joined by two members of the Macaulay family who have had a tremendous impact on the Macaulay we know today. Current Dean of Faculty and Curriculum, Sumner Macaulay, is joined by his uncle and former Macaulay headmaster, Spencer Macaulay III. In a previous episode of Stories from the Ridge, we talked about the history of our campus as part of the Chattanooga campaign of the Civil War. Today we will touch on the history of Macaulay in a different way, talking about the spirit of this special place through stories from growing up here on the Ridge to leading the school through a time of change and growth. We hope that you enjoy today's story from the Ridge. Welcome to this edition of Macaulay School Stories from the Ridge podcast. I'm Sumner Macaulay, Dean of Faculty and Curriculum, and today I have the privilege of sharing this time with my uncle, Spencer Macaulay III, grandson of one of the school's founders, son of a headmaster, grew up on campus, attended Macaulay as a student, went to Vanderbilt University, served in the U.S. military, the Navy, and then returned to a life dedicated to the education and to this institution. While at Macaulay, he served as an English teacher, took a year to pursue an advanced degree from Harvard, came back and continued to teach English, and eventually became department head, director of admissions, associate headmaster, and then in 1974, became headmaster, a position he held for 25 years, retiring in 1999. He and his wife Sarah were central to encouraging the academic and community-based culture that has defined Macaulay for decades. During his career, Spencer also served on many local, regional, and national boards, including the Tennessee, Southern, and National Associations of Independent Schools. He served as president of the Headmasters Association. In retirement, he's continued to be an active leader in Chattanooga, working on boards related to the symphony, the arts, education, and community impact. In my first years as a young teacher, and at many school events and family gatherings after he retired, one line that he constantly used in talking about Macaulay was that we drink from wells we did not dig. And I get to do that every day here, and it's a real pleasure to share this podcast with him, someone who dug those wells upon which I now so deeply depend. Welcome, Uncle Spencer. For the vast majority of your life, Macaulay School was very much at the center of your daily existence and you've seen and were much responsible for the school growing into the remarkable place it is today. Maybe begin by giving us a sense of how that school evolved. There may be some main stages that you saw, and then we'll go back to childhood and begin again. Thank you, Sumner. That, that is something I've thought about a lot as I, after you gave me this invitation to speak. I remember very well near retirement, maybe 10 years from retirement, talking to an old headmaster from Lawrenceville, who had been a friend of my father's. And I had noticed that many headmasters lasted seven or eight years at a school, and then there was some kind of disagreement with the board, or there was turnover. I had already been at Macaulay 17, 18 years. And so I asked him, do you think a school goes stale if someone stays too long. And he laughed, he said, no, I was at Lawrence for a long time. But at Lawrenceville, I saw three different versions of the school. He said, that's the issue. 
does the school change and grow? And does it grow in such a way that is still recognizable as the original school? And I thought that was a pretty profound challenge. So think about it, I'm 82. I was born in 1936, pre-World War II. The Depression's hardly over. I see a campus as a child that was uh, very safe, very small, uh, tended by a very small ground crew and two mules. My New England friends used to laugh about that. Uh, but that turned out to be a real good thing when you got into to the war and you had gasoline rationing. And so there were fields at Macaulay, and as small as that campus was, for the raising of hay for the mules. Uh, the two founders walked through the campus at that time as like kings. I mean, the boys were very respectful of my grandfather, Spencer Sr., and Dr. Park. But the place was small and simple, and later I would look back and wonder how influential it was, even though it was small and suffering after the Depression. Uh, but when I went to Vanderbilt in the mid-50s, uh, professors knew where it was. The chancellor talked to me about Macaulay, and I was put in some very advanced courses. Uh, I was amazed when I, I took some achievement tests, and they put me in a math class of only six. And it was, we studied things that were right remarkable. Uh, but that very small school, struggling I know at times, became something very different. So that's one iteration of, of the school. So from the very beginning, there was, there was a strong academic interest. When you think about the founding of the school, the goal of, of the founding was what? What did you hear from grandparents from your father? Great-grandfather wanted it to be a Christian school, but not like some of the, he called them Bible colleges of the day. It should have real learning. There should be the sciences. There should be writing. And he did not, he advised them to, uh, to make it an academic institution. Well, he was bringing back one son from the University of Chicago, that's my grandfather, and Uncle Park had a PhD in astronomy from seven years at the University of Virginia. So he was talking to the right young men. They were young men, but they were both unusually educated for the time. And that's been something it seems that Macaulay's been able to do. It's, it's to have the character piece. It's to have that central sense of growing up and teaching men of honor, but making sure that, that that's not mutually exclusive to the academic excellence to prepare them for the world that's in front of them. Exactly, I, and I was thinking today, the honor system was very, very powerful, and in some ways, they had to cut. We had to cut back a little bit on the public apologies for honor violations. School got a little too big for that, uh, but it was strict in, in those that way, and yet uh, a very warm place in, in other ways. Uh, just an amazing. Old alumni, long gone now, would talk to me about their time there with great love and affection. So as a, as a young boy growing up on campus, before you enrolled in Macaulay, 
give me a sense of what a bike ride around campus would look like. What were you experiencing? Well, we, we didn't really do that until classes were out. Uh, but it was, it was a barn at one end of the campus where South Hutchinson is now with the mules. There were just a lot of pads. There were brick walks that were real rough and, and ragged. Uh, a lot of places weren't mowed until it got high enough to make hay. So it, was, it wasn't this beautifully sculpted place that it is now. It was, and you could hide. They were around that old barn and there were sheds and piles of old equipment and stuff. It had its own little junkyard and uh, there were the old gyms. Do you remember as a young kid engaging with students who were here? And boarders, boarders were here for the very first year. So did yeah, you, did you uh, engage the with The older them? guys were our heroes. Somebody who was a football star was a hero. If we were 10 or 11 or 12, we knew who that boy was. And if he spoke to us and knew us by name, we, we were very pleased with ourselves. And then you become a student, and what is that experience to move from a campus kid, son of the headmaster, to being now a student? Uh, well, my family had been there before. I mean, my father had been a student under his father. Uncle Bob had been under Dr. Park. And so they knew, they knew how to handle it, and I got no privileges. In fact, one time I, uh, in my father's Bible class, I got back in 90 or 95, and the other guy said, what would you miss? And we, they looked and said, well, you didn't miss anything. I said, no, I, don't, I just don't think my father's going to give me 100 on anything. <laughs> and that was true. Yeah. And so they commiserated with me rather than thinking I was getting privileges. Yeah. But it was, seemed like such a simpler uh, time. Pre-war, the Board of Trustees had made plans for the school. And the depression and the war had wiped those plans out. Years later in an attic uh, of Old South Hall before it was torn down, I came on a very large poster that showed the buildings that would have been built. But they weren't built. They weren't built for, I guess, uh, Davenport Gym in 1949. So the war's been over four or five years. The chapel, it took them until uh, 1955 build the chapel. So uh, the, the history had fits and, and starts. So that's an interesting thing though because when you then come back to Macaulay and you begin as a teacher you have the academic piece but you also know that long term there may be a role that you would play in leading the school. Um, that would obviously unfold. So. Yes. Uh -huh. so you're beginning to think at that point about what the school is going to look like and I don't mean just physically but the feel of the school, the sense of the school. What, when you first came back to, to teach at Macaulay, how did that feel differ from when you were a student? And is it different from just the growing up that happened over the time, or is there actually a different feel that you had? Well, it, things began to change rather rapidly, actually. Uh, it was still military, and it was highly regimented. And it, it had been doing some of the same things for 15 or 20 years. Now, the military had come in after World War One, but all grades were posted and averaged, and if you'd had demerits, that added or took away from your average. It was called the Privilege Rating Excellence System, 
something like, and it was, it was a half of a system. It was very resonant. I'd come out of the Navy. I'd been in college. It seemed to me too regimented. Then I became director of admissions, and that became harder and harder. We, I would get calls like some judge trying to remand a juvenile delinquent to our custody, and I said, why would we want that? He said, well, you're a military school, aren't you? So the image of the military school was kind of turning bad during the Vietnam War. Plus, boys watching what happened in the Vietnam War would see on the television no parades. All we did was parades. And if you took a boy in the 11th grade, a boarding student, he was an automatic private and because the day students had been there longer. So that became a big difficulty. Uh, some people think military was dropped, that, uh, that word spread at one point because the school didn't want to desegregate at that time. It had nothing to do with it. The board asked for two groups of faculty to debate in front of them about why we should keep military. And the ones that talked about our lean curriculum, 16 credits to graduate. How many credits do most boys get now? Do most guys are doing 22 or so. 22 or so. So we had, we were very thin on the sciences and art and music. And I realized as director of admissions that you know, we were lacking some things. Fortunately, in front of the board, the faculty that talked about more classes more activities, a broader range of classes. Uh, the fact that the military was not as, well, creative or even demanding. You could put on a parade after six weeks and you still had 30 weeks in school left. So that group of faculty won. In the next four or five years, the student body increased by 20% the faculty increased by 40%. It was a tremendous financial hit to keep up with the new science courses. The, uh, that's got to be the biggest change. So at that point, in 74, I became headmaster of a very different school in some ways from the one that I had grown up with and gone to school. So this is fascinating because it Initially, when you went to Vanderbilt as a student, you talked about the idea that you knew that you were from an academic institution, yeah. but suddenly the level has just accelerated. You come in and, and what's being expected of these young men as they move on to college is simply at a different level. Than yes, and at one point when we, uh, when we applied to, for national recognition, a letter came back from the committee saying, well, we think you're a very good school, but why do you require so few credits for graduation? And I think uh, Miles McNiff was academic dean then. And so that, that led us then into advanced placement. Because one of the issues in a Southern school was that a New England college, or, or maybe anywhere, really didn't know how good you were. So if you could take an advanced placement course, the same class and same exam that was being given in Chicago or San Francisco or Boston, and make a top grade, you were proving something. Uh, in my role as a member of the Headmasters Association, which is, was only 85 members, and so that included Exter and Andover and Schott and all of those. And that's the great honor of my life, really, was to be president for one year of that, of that group. 
they would sometimes say, well, we don't need advanced placements because everybody knows how good we are. And I would have to say, we're in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and everybody doesn't know it yet. Yes, so we would. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one visit to a school in Massachusetts, they were celebrating they were celebrating eight National Merit semifinalists, and they said, do you have advanced places? I said, yes, we do. And it was a middle-level school. And he said, well, do you have any National Merit finalists, the, the ones that have scored, I don't know, five on three or four, I don't remember what it was. I said, yes. He said, how many? And I was a little embarrassed. I said, we, this year we had 28. He was stunned. He had no idea. So you can... Go back to that military thing. One issue was alumni, older alumni look back on it as discipline and uh, the way the light it should be. And I, I think a telling story, two or three years before my father retired, he said to me, I'm really tired, and, but some young officers are coming from Stanton Military Academy and they want to see how we are faring after dropping military. You take them to supper and you tell them. So I did. We're walking through the campus and they are saying, well, there's not much trash around. And I'm thinking, they think that if you get rid of military, everything turns into a dump or something. So they looked, they were kind of impressed. We went to the dining hall. The boys were not in any kind of uniform, but they looked nice. Nobody was throwing food. There was nice discussion going on. People were talking. And they said to me, what is it do you think that has kept you from being hurt by dropping the military? And I said, the military wasn't our main asset. The academics and the kind of faculty we have, that is the asset. I said, if the military is your main asset and you drop it, I don't know where you are. Two years later, they closed. Mm -hmm. When you think of the, the goals you had as you stepped into being headmaster and saying this is what the school needs at this point, and then five years later and 20 years later from that, what were the major sort of pivotal moments that you feel happened or that you pushed and made sure it happened? Oh, Sumner, I've got to admit something here now. In about my second or third year in the summer, I went down to the, I was in the football stadium and nobody's around, of course, it's summer. And the, the golden light was shining up on the side of Missionary Ridge in the school and the old brick buildings. And I sat there for a long time and envisioned what the school would look like. And I missed it entirely. Absolutely came up with the smallest vision you ever saw because it, it wasn't gonna be me, just me. It was going to be trustees. It was going to be visiting school, other schools over a long period of time. It was five-year planning sessions. It was the arrival of the computer technology. It was the expansion of the campus. There were so many things that changed that I did not foresee. And, and all along the way, there were trustees who were finding this in their own business. This was the South. Some, the money was finally beginning to be available. And companies were expanding, although a lot of things closed because of the, the environment. And, and uh, 
there was just a lot of change. You, you had places like Combustion with 6,000 workers and they were closing down and the foundries were closing. But at the same time, other people were doing very well. And those thoughtful men that were reacting to the changing world were also on our board. And they, they understood it was necessary for me to travel to other schools, which I did. I went to all the national meetings. It's one of the reasons I got on those boards because I was always there and we, we learned a lot of things, but my first vision was totally inadequate. So what gave you the courage as a person to move forward? I mean, obviously this is a school that your family had started, right. so there's that piece, but, but this is bigger than that. This, this is not just I've, I've now gotten to be headmaster, this is some other drive that you're, you're seeing. Well, I, I, I may have been a little competitive. <laughs> I, I wanted it to go somewhere, but so did the trustees, and they and they knew that. Uh, so I got a lot of support there. I, you know, let's pick a thing. Uh, I go to the trustees. I say I am having a very difficult time finding competitive science teachers. Mm. We don't offer salaries that allow me to get the teachers I need to get. And one trustee said, you know, I've wondered how long we, we could continue this way. And I, and I answered, I said, well, I don't think I can. I, I'm not being able to, to hire and even to attract to campus for the interview with the kind of salary that, that we're, we're giving. And I asked the board, I said, can you hire young, well-educated, energetic, young men, mostly who we were hiring at the time, on my on this salary, and I told them the starting salary, and they said, nah, you're right, we can't, we can't do it. You gotta, you gotta have more. Uh, what's the going rate? Well, at that point, uh, Mel and I got the, the uh, National Association of Independent Schools, well, they were publishing a lot of stuff, but we looked at all their stuff, and we told them what the, the median was and the top 25%, the top 10%. And so some very uh, good trustees said, all right, let's set the goal. In the next three years, we're going to be in the top 25%. Our median salaries will be in the top 25%. Several years later, some said, I think we now should shoot for the top 10%. He said, well, but that, that, that also tries to compete with New York schools and Boston schools. It's a different cost of living. But that was a big deal. And then I realized I had to have a better hold on how salaries were, were formed and came up with the point system. Which we still have today. Which you still have. And in that you could offer a very bright uh, woman, for instance, who's teaching science and says, I can't coach football or soccer or any of those things. And you say, well, there's a good-sized bonus for an extra class occasionally. And so you could even all that stuff out. And so even an older uh, teacher who was wanted to hope, you know, slow down a little bit was getting seniority points but said, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I said, that's okay. Are you willing to take a four or $5,000 hit? Well, then they had to decide. It wasn't up to me. And uh, I know that sounds a little harsh, but it was very practical, and trustees liked it, so the salaries began to go up. 
and at that point, the faculty liked it. Uh, and the whole development office, this, this whole thing of having a Mel Cooper, and a, at first the faculty called it the empire as more and more people added until the faculty salary started going up. <laughs> and the new buildings came online. And the uh, 401k came in. We were the first in, in all of the Southeast schools to have a 401k. In fact, uh, Fidelity told us that they only had two in nonprofit schools, Macaulay School and Miami of Ohio. And then the, the rest had followed, come in following years with the 403b. Uh, that, I know that's not an exciting story, but that is part of what helped the best teachers stay here. Because uh, sometimes people would try to raid. You've got somebody that's, most of the class gets a five, a top five on the advanced placement year after year after year. That, that teacher's a pretty good commodity. So what you're, what you're describing that very much is as you move into the headmaster role, you have a number of lofty goals that have been that developed that are not just about how do I get you know, good teaching in the classroom. It's to do that you have to do a number of other things and they're buildings, they're grounds, there's a there's a, a marketing piece, there's a salary piece. You've yeah. got to get Chattanooga to a point where people are gonna wanna come to Chattanooga and live as a family. You have all of those things, technology changes, and somehow you still kept your focus on the student. You didn't let all those other pieces and fundraising, et cetera, lose track of the student piece. Talk a little bit about that, because that's been consistent with Macaulay. Uh, well, Mel and I and the faculty that we would have on committees talked about that issue, and that, that, that was strategy. What is the strategy? The strategy is to do something that will ultimately profit students. Well, what does that? Better teachers. Teachers that are able to go off in the summer and get renewal activities. Uh, teachers that can travel a little bit. Teachers that aren't under pressure all the time just to take care of their families. They are better teachers. That is something that goes directly to students. Uh, the technology. It was very expensive at first and, and fairly simple. And it took a long time before the technology was as helpful as we had hoped it would be. But that was something we had to do for the world students were going into. So I remember saying that, that, that you tried to find out what expenditure or thing you built would actually improve the education and well-being and interest levels and engagement of students. And I would be making a talk somewhere, and at that point, other people would start writing. Somehow, it's really easy to be in a campaign and forget what you're doing it for. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That it always comes back to the students and trying to figure out how do you help them grow academically and personally, socially. Yeah, and, and you know, and things changed. We, we, I was there in the days of the everybody took a year of Bible. Uh, people talk about. It. Character building. Character building occurred, as I remember, when we were re reading Shakespeare in a small class with Bob McCauley, uh, or in a history class with O.L. Schmidt. And he was talking about the conflict between left and right, or who, whoever, and the fact that this did come down 
frequently to issues of what was just, what was right. Uh, that's character. As the school got bigger, I understand there have been more defined programs for that, and that, that makes sense, but that doesn't mean that it didn't occur in those, those early days. Um, well, it would seem that a lot of the conversations you had with trustees, in fact, demonstrate that. I mean, the very folks that are trying to continue yeah, the school's yeah. movement forward were products of the development of character while they were here as students. I've got to say that after I retired, I had uh, friends at other schools who had retired, and then they felt like their replacement began to mess up what <laughs> they had done. <laughs> and I never had felt that. I would tell people, goodness, I just feel like anything I did got built on. It may have gotten changed, and people may have forgotten. It may be unrecognizable now, but I have certainly not seen anything happen that made me regret. And uh, kind of to end it on a nostalgic note, I think. When I was a young teacher, uh, I'd only been back since my first year, and Uncle Park, Dr. Park, one of the two founders, grandfather died in 49, and this was probably 63 or 4. So he hadn't seen the new gym, he hadn't seen the chapel, he hadn't seen some of the dorms. And, uh, Uncle Park, you might remember hearing me say this before, that the boys were always amazed that it didn't matter what happened. He would just, Martians could land in the field and he would say, I am amazed. Everybody else would be swearing or making up, but he would just say, I am amazed. And so he, he was talking about the campus and the school. He's talking to all these boarding parents on boarding parents weekend. He said, if my brother Spencer could be here today and see what this has become from the little school we built, he would be amazed. I walk onto campus and I think, if Uncle Park and grandfather, if my father and Uncle Bob, if they could see it, what would they think? What would they think? Well, thanks. Thank you, Mr. Spencer. It's a fantastic way to end it, and I appreciate your process. That is exactly what we feel when we walk on campuses, drinking from wells we did not dig. Yeah. Thank All you, right. sir. You're welcome.